Our scripture reading for today is in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him too. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. This is God's word. What well, is a blessing to get to be with you tonight and to be able to worship alongside of you to celebrate baptism and to continue on going through the book of Matthew together. Uh, we are in Advent right now. Advent means arrival. And so we are looking to Jesus' arrival coming first time in Scripture, but also it causes us to look to his second arrival when Jesus will come again. And so as we walk through these texts over the past couple weeks and tonight, we are reminded of where our hope is and where our trust is. And tonight we're talking about who we're called to worship, that Jesus' followers worship the king. And we see this in this beautiful passage. And so just as a reminder, there's all kinds of resources that are available for you to help you and your family uh, pursue Jesus during the season. And those are available online and out in the lobby. Uh, but we're excited to get to worship together tonight. And so as we uh, get into this text, we do see that one of the major themes of it is this idea of worship. And as I was thinking through kind of what we we're going to be talking about tonight, what we see in this passage, I was reminded of one of the most memorable and, and visceral worship experiences that I've ever been a part of. And it didn't happen at a church. It wasn't at a church. It wasn't at a conference. In fact, it didn't have anything to do uh, with Jesus. But about 12, 13 years ago, my wife and I, we had uh, gone on a trip to Raleigh, North Carolina. We were looking to move there. I was finishing up uh, my marketing degree at East Tennessee State University. And as we came back, ETSU had a free concert that night. Uh, and we decided, well, why not? You know, we'll go check it out. So it was a Carrie Underwood concert. And before you judge me too hard for like being a country music fan, I'm not. My wife dislikes Carrie Underwood. And before you judge her too hard, please don't. She just does. So anyway, so we went to this 
concert and we were there and it was, it was fine and we got to the last song and uh, Carrie has this song called Before He Cheats, I think is the name of the song. Some of you, you know what I'm talking about. And so we're there, you know, they're going through the song, she gets to the end and she does what a lot of artists do in, in kind of a high moment of the song. So the band kind of dropped back and she put her mic out so the crowd could, could sing out. And in that moment, something happened that I'd never experienced before. Thousands of women standing up, fist in the air, talking about digging their car keys into somebody's ride and smashing it with a baseball bat. And just this noise erupted in the room. And I could see alongside me too, but all of the guys in the room just kind of shrinking back into their chair, like what has come out of this woman who's next to me? And it was just, it was a moment, a moment that, that I'll never forget. And you might say, well, that's not a worship experience, but, but it was. It was this moment where all these people united in this, this desire, this hurt, this, this lost love that they'd felt, the anger and vengeance that they wanted to pour out on this person who had captured their heart and had trampled their heart. And so they were responding in that moment. And what I realized then and what's become clear now is, is I get to study scripture in light of those kind of things is that worship is all around us. The worship isn't limited to a church. Worship isn't limited to a Sunday. It's not limited to a, a gathering in, in a spiritual building or a religious building. That worship happens everywhere and it happens all the time. It's, it's a part of who we are as human beings. And it's not just a part of who we are as human beings because that's just the way the culture is around us. But, but I'm convinced that it's a part of who we are as human beings because God has hardwired the human heart for worship. That we were created to worship. We were created to praise. We were created to give glory and give worth to something or someone. And we see that the theme of worship is runs all throughout scripture. We see it in this passage, but we see it everywhere, which, which leads us this evening and this weekend to our big truth, which is this, Jesus followers worship the king. So if, if worship is a part of our existence and it's a part of humanity, and it's all around us. One of the truths that we see throughout scripture is that Jesus followers are called to worship, but we're not just called to worship anyone or anything. We're called to worship the king. Let me just give you a few examples of this throughout scripture and then we're going to look and see how we, we see this in our text today. First one is this, Romans 12:1. the apostle Paul says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, your lives, yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we're called to spiritual worship. We're called to give worship. But as Jesus followers, that worship belongs to God. And worship is not just a song that we sing. It's not just a moment we're a part of. But he says it is our lives. It is ourselves. It is our being. Jesus talked about worship. John 4, 23, he's having a conversation with the woman at the well. And, and the woman asked him about where should we worship? Should we worship on this mountain where the Samaritans worship or should we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus answers that question. He says, it's not about this place or that place. This is what Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So God longs for us to worship, but our worship is to be in spirit and in truth. And then this is a passage that many of us know, Matthew 22, 36 to 37, Jesus gets asked a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment in Moses' law in the Old Testament? And Jesus answers with a worship answer. This is what he says. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So we are called to love God with our all. What does that mean? That is worship. All our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength poured out for God's glory. So Jesus' followers, they're called to worship the king. In fact, we don't just see that all throughout scripture, but we see that illustrated in this passage that we just heard read about the magi or the wise men. It's a passage about worship. If you have your, your scripture, your Bible opened up, you can look uh, beginning in chapter two. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and listen to this, and have come to worship him. So the purpose of their quest, the purpose of this journey that they're on is worship. They have come to worship a king. But not just any king. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. And then we jump down to verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. In verse 11, going to the house, they saw the child, Mary, the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshiped him. Again, Jesus' followers, they're called to worship the king. This is the journey that these magi, these wise men are on. The purpose of their journey is to find the king and worship him. And the purpose of this story, this narrative that we've grown up hearing about, if you grew up in church and have read the Christmas story before, the purpose of the story is not the wise man. The purpose of the story is not Herod or Bethlehem. The purpose of this story is to point the reader, to point us to worship the one true king who is Jesus. You and I were created to worship him. You and I have the opportunity, the gift to be able to worship the king. It's what we were created to do. It's what every human was created to do. Which leads us to ask some important questions. One, how do we worship? How do we worship? What, what, what is worship? What does it look like? If we're called to worship the king, how do we do that? And how do we do it rightly? What, what does right worship look like in God's eyes? And then just practically, how do we worship in everyday life? Can we worship in everyday life? Is worship limited to a service like we're a part of a gathering like this moment? Or can we worship in all of life? How do we do that? And thankfully, this passage of scripture helps answer some of those questions. And so I would just love for us to kind of walk through it and unpack some of these things together before we respond in singing. So the way I wanna do that is just through uh, three big ideas. The first one is this, we are worshipers. We are worshipers. So how do we worship? 
The way we worship is we have to understand that we are worshipers. That every human being was created to worship. In fact, not only were we created to worship, every human being worships all the time. We give weight, we give praise, we give glory, we give honor to things all the time. And you don't have to know God, you don't have to know Jesus, you don't have to be a Christian to worship. In fact, we see that here in this text in verse two. These magi, these wise men, they are coming to worship this king of Israel. But guess what, they have a problem. They don't know who he is. They don't know his name. They don't know where he's been born. All they know is that there is a king who's been born and they wanna worship him. They don't know who he is. They don't know, they know about the promises and some of the prophecies, but they don't know who it is. They are not Israelites or Jews. And so that raises an important thing for us to understand. You don't have to know who Jesus is to be a worshiper. We are all worshipers. An implication of that means that everyone in this room right now today is worshiping someone or something with your life. The question is not are we worshiping, the question is what are we worshiping? What are you giving your heart to? What are you giving your affection to? What are you giving your life to? The Magi are seeking to worship a king. They know how to worship, says we have come to worship him, meaning they know what to do, they know what worship is, they know how to give worth, how to give praise, how to give honor to someone or something. But what they don't know is who they're to worship. They know that there's a king, they're following his star, but they don't know who he is, they don't know where he is, but they know what they are supposed to do when they find him. Which again, just raises the reality that we are all worshipers. You can think about it this way. What do you do when you get something that you're really excited about in your life? You talk about it. You post it on Instagram or Facebook for all the world to see because when we find something we're excited about or is meaningful to us, we want other people to join us in our joy. Kids do this all the time. My kids will come and they will draw me a picture. And the truth is, when I look at that picture, I don't know what it is. Is it a monster? Is it spaghetti? What, like, what, what is this? But they are so proud of that. They want to share what they have done and what they are proud of and they want me to join them in their joy. Worship is natural for us as human beings. We do it all the time. So we are worshipers. So what is worship? Let me just give you a few, a few kind of definitional ideas just so that we're all on the same page here. And I've got some scriptures to go along with it. You can grab the notes online in case you don't write all these down. You wanna go back and look at it on your own. What is worship? If we are worshipers, what is it? Three, three things. Worship is first, it's giving worth. Weight, praise, honor, and glory to something or someone. Worship is giving worth, weight, praise, honor, or glory to something or someone. It's, it's making much of someone. It's making much of something. If before we left tonight, I came up to you and said, hey, I have a gift for you. I wanna give you season passes to Disney World. For most of you, you'd probably be pretty excited about that. Some of you'd be like, no, that sounds like a nightmare to me. But for some, uh, that would be awesome. And you would want to share that. You'd want to talk to your spouse, your kids about it. Guess what happened to us? And when you do that, when you give praise or worth or glory, weight, acclaim to something, you are worshiping. You are giving praise in that moment. Worship is giving worth. We see that throughout scripture. Second thing that worship is, worship is continuous. It's continuous. 
We give praise all the time. It's natural to us. When Tennessee scores a touchdown, we give praise, we give worth, we give weight to it. If you are a Tennessee fan, if you're not, you, you may not. Worship never stops, it only changes directions. So one moment we can give worth to something, and the next moment we can give worth to something else. And this is the problem with the human heart, is that we were created to worship God, but the problem is we take the glory that is due him and we put it on other things or other people. So we give more weight, we give more glory to our job or to our kids or to what's happening around us or to a relationship, whatever those things are, than to the one who deserves our glory and our praise. Psalm 8611 talks about this, it talks, it's a prayer and he says, unite my heart to fear your name. And the reason why he says that is because our heart is prone to chase this thing and chase that thing. So he's saying, unite it to worship you, to fear you above all else. Romans 125 talks about this. It says that the problem of the creation, us, mankind, is that we have chosen to serve the creature instead of the creator. We've worshiped and served created things instead of the one who created them. So worship happens all the time. The problem is it, it changes directions. It's not focused on the one that it was created to be focused on. Let me give you a third definition. Worship is not limited to a time or place. It's not an event. It happens in all of life. So sometimes we think about worship and we think about the worship of God and we think about, well, it needs to happen in a church or it needs to happen on a Sunday or it needs to happen with God's people. And that is one way we worship. That is one place we worship. That is one time. But worship happens in all of life, every single day. And we see that in this text too. At the end of this, in, verses, in verse 11, it says, the wise men came to Mary and Joseph's house and worshiped Jesus there. It wasn't in a synagogue. It wasn't at a religious function. But their worship of the child king happened in normal everyday life. And that means for us that we can worship God. We can give praise to God. We can give honor to God. We can give our hearts and our lives to God all the time, anywhere, that every single day is an opportunity for praise, for worship. You don't have to be a pastor or be a missionary. That in all of life, we can give God worship. That's good news for us. So let me just give a few points of application just really quickly. The first one is this. Everyone is worshiping someone or something. We are all worshipers. So here's the question. Here's the point of application. What are you worshiping tonight? Who are you worshiping tonight? Who's getting your heart tonight? Who's getting your affection tonight? Who's getting your praise tonight? What do you love most tonight? And whatever we love most is tied to who we're worshiping, what we're looking to to bring us joy, what we're looking to to bring us happiness, what we're looking to to bring us peace. If, if this thing happens, then I'll be happy. If this person comes home for Christmas, then we'll have joy. If this virus would just go away and the pandemic would go over, then I would have peace. Those things point to what we are looking to, what we are giving our worth and weight to, to save us from our circumstances. They're the things we talk about. Who or what are you worshiping tonight? The second point of application really quickly. We discover what we're worshiping 
when our idols are threatened. If you wanna know what you're worshiping, if you wanna know what's getting your heart, if you wanna know what's getting your love and affection, when that thing is threatened, that's how you know. We see this in this passage. If you have your Bible, look at verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. See, what should have happened is Herod hears this good news. A king has been born. The Messiah is here. The Savior is here. But what's Herod's response? He's bothered, troubled, disturbed, agitated. Why? Because if a new king's coming, his power and his security and his throne is in jeopardy. When our idols are threatened, it reveals what we're worshiping. So really plainly, what frustrates you? What agitates you when it's tweaked? When that thing is taken away or that thing happens to you that makes you anxious, makes you afraid, makes you angry, whatever that thing is probably has a lot of weight and worth in your life right now. And for Herod, it was this idea that there might be another king that was coming in that could assault his throne, could assault his authority, could assault his power, would take away the control that he has. He was, he was troubled. And the third point of application is this. Knowledge of scripture does not in itself lead to knowing and worshiping Jesus. Knowing scripture doesn't necessarily lead to worship of God. Look again at this passage. Verse four, Herod assembling, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And in this moment, what we do not see happening is we would expect that the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, that they would run to Bethlehem to worship the Messiah, the one that they've been looking for, the one they've been reading about, the one they've been studying. But it never happens. And even Herod, who's now being, having scripture read to him, doesn't change his heart, doesn't change his mind. Just because we have access to the good news doesn't mean it will lead us to worship of the king. And we need to be really careful as people who, a lot of you and a lot of us, we've grown up in church, we've grown up around religion. Just because we go to church and we sing the songs and we read scripture doesn't mean that we are actually worshiping Jesus. The way that we know we're worshiping Jesus is whether or not Jesus is our treasure. It's he who and what we love above all else. And so we should be warned tonight. The Magi, the ones who didn't have the scriptures, the ones who didn't know all the promises, they are the ones who are eagerly searching for the king. The ones who had the resources, who knew the word, who knew the promises, those are the ones that were most complacent and numb to the arrival of the new king. It should be a warning for us. What has your heart? Who is your treasure? So we are worshipers. Second big idea is this. Right worship is setting our attention and our affection on Jesus. So what is right worship? If we are worshipers, then how do we worship rightly? What does that look like? What does God's word calls us, call us to? Well, it calls us to set our attention and our affection on Jesus above all else. 
To not put our hope in false saviors, but to put our hope in the one true savior. And that's the point of this text. All of the things that we see in Matthew 2 are to direct our attention, direct our hearts, direct our gaze to the reality that Jesus is the king. Look again at verse 2. The question they ask is so important. Where is he? They're looking for a person. That right worship is aimed at an individual. That individual is Jesus, who has been born, this is an important phrase, king of the Jews. Their worship's not random. It's, it's aimed at someone. They are looking for someone, and it's calling us to see that right worship in our lives needs to be aimed at the same one, the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. And all throughout this passage are pictures pointing us to see that Jesus is the king we've been looking for. He is the one that our hearts were created for. Let me just give you some of the promises that we see in this passage that point to Jesus Christ. Let me give you four just really quickly. The first one is this, the star. The star points to Jesus as being the one true king who deserves our affection, who deserves our attention. Something supernatural has risen in the heavens. All creation is worshiping and shouting the praise of this king that has been born. In fact, whatever this star is, it was so significant that it caused these astrologers who lived far away to recognize it and to move and to take their lives and probably months of their lives to go and pursue this king. And this wasn't just some random star, but it was a promised star. Numbers 24, verse 17 says this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It's a promise that happened in the book of Numbers about this king that would come out of Jacob and the star being a picture of the king that would rise. The star in this story is a reminder of us also of the Exodus. In Exodus 13, 21, God led his people, how? A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. That the physical elements of creation are guiding God's people toward the promised land. And now for the Magi, this star is guiding people to see the one true king. The star also points to a spiritual reality that God has now brought light to the people who were in darkness. This was a promise from Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The star is a picture that the light has come to those who are in darkness and sin. Praise God to us. But not only do we see the star, but we see the nations. That's another promise that's here. The Magi don't just represent themselves. In fact, it's really important. Matthew doesn't tell us their names. He doesn't tell us where they're from. They're from the east, but we don't know. That could be Persia, Babylon, India. We don't know. It doesn't tell us how many. All the songs, we talk about three kings, but we don't know how many. There were three gifts, but there could have been many kings. We don't know how many they were. We don't know their names. We don't know they're from. Why would the Bible not tell us that? Because who they are is not the point of the story. Who they are worshiping and what they represent is the point of the story. They've come to worship Jesus, but they represent the nations. And all throughout the Old Testament is this promise that God would bring the nations into right worship with him, not just the Jews. Isaiah 60 verse 3 says this, And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The Magi coming to worship the one true king, this promise is being fulfilled. 
Psalm 67 is a psalm about the worship. May all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, looking forward to this day when God would draw all people to himself. And we celebrate this promise fulfilled that brings us to the family of God, that we were outside. We are part of those nations, those Gentile nations. The apostle Paul reflecting on this, talking to the church of Ephesus says this, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. One of the promises is that this king would come and draw all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues to the worship himself. Praise God. And we see that promise being fulfilled in this text. We also see the picture of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that's the third one. And I've given you several passages there. Bethlehem is significant in the Old Testament. It's the burial place of Rachel, Jacob, the father, the, the nation of Israel, his wife. Bethlehem's where Ruth met Boaz, who's a part of Jesus' lineage. It's the home of David. And it's the city where the ruler of God's people would be born. Micah 5.2, the promise that we see quoted here in verse 6 of Matthew 2 says this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me the one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. What does that mean? It means the one who's coming has been from forever, from ancient of days, has now been born. He's going to come from Bethlehem. This promise is now being fulfilled. It's why this city is so significant in this passage. And I'll just give you a third one, or a fourth. A fourth promise fulfilled is that he's going to be a shepherd king. A shepherd king. Have your Bible open in Matthew chapter, six, or chapter 2, verse 6. It says this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. He's not just gonna be any king, he's gonna be a shepherd king. And one of the promises that runs throughout the Old Testament is the idea that God would send a king to shepherd his people. Think Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I have no lack. Or Ezekiel 34, 15, God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And then when Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for his sheep. And in this short little passage of scripture, we see promise after promise after promise being fulfilled in Jesus. Right worship is when we set our attention and our affection not on the things around us, not on the cares of this world, not on the struggles in our life, but on the one true King, Jesus Christ. The one that we've sung about, the one that Christmas and Advent are all about. We worship him, we give our lives to him. He is worthy of everything we have. He's worthy of our worship. Friends, is Jesus your treasure? Is he the one that you have your heart set on? Is he the one that you've given your life to? Is he the one that you're building the story of your life on? If he's not tonight, I would urge you, follow the one true king. Worship the one true king. He's worthy of your praise. Which leads to the third and final big idea. How do we worship? What does worship look like in normal, everyday life? Worship requires sacrifice. 
If we're gonna worship the king, it's gonna require sacrifice. It's a laying down of the things we value most or value much in this world for the thing that we value most. It's a laying aside the things in our lives that are precious for us for the one who is most precious to us. Look at verses 10 through 12. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child Mary, with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So they're worshiping, look at their response. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Worship demands and requires sacrifice. We're gonna worship Jesus. It's not just showing up for church and singing a song or reading the Bible every now and again or, or talking to somebody about Jesus, but it's about laying down everything in our lives for the king because he is worthy of it. And we see that in several practical ways. First, we see their pursuit. Their pursuit. They left their homeland. They traveled far they would have had to spend money and time and effort to get to the king. If we are going to worship the king in normal everyday life, it's gonna require pursuit, time, time in the word, investment, discipline, effort. We see the response of their worship. We see that they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When Jesus captures your heart, it creates a response of joy and gladness in your soul. We see the posture of their worship. They bowed down humility. These men who had authority, they had power, they bowed down. And think about this, not at a king on a throne, but at a, a child. Jesus wouldn't have been any older than two years old at this time. These men bowing down, giving their gifts, laying these things out in worship to him. There's a posture to worship. It's a humility. It's a recognizing that he is God and we are not. And we are unworthy and he is worthy. And so we lay down our pride and we worship him. See, a pursuit and response posture. We also see the gift of worship. They give these gifts, treasure, gold, frankincense, myrrh. These were priceless objects. It would have cost them something. And they lay them down at their feet. Part of worshiping Jesus is taking our money, taking our resources, taking our homes, taking our lives, taking our income, taking these things, these possessions, our time, and giving them back to God because he's worthy of those things. So we gladly pour them back out to him. We also see that they fear God in their worship over man. In verse 12, Herod had said, hey, come back to me. Come tell me where this king is so that I can come worship him too. And they defy the rule. They defy what Herod has told them to do. They go another way. They, instead of worshiping this other person who has power, they choose to fear God above all else and worship this child. And often, I'm afraid for us, we care more about the approval of others than the approval of God. And so worship in everyday life, it looks like a giving, a sacrificing, a pouring out in the little things, but in the things that we care about the most for Jesus, the one true king. So friends, I just, I ask you tonight, who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping with your life? Is Jesus the one that your heart and your attention is set on tonight? One of the beautiful realities found in this text tonight is that worship, and this is important, 
you say, man, I wanna worship Jesus, I want my life to be his, I want to give him control, there's good news for you tonight. Worship doesn't start with you, it starts with God. It starts with God's initiative, not your initiative. Who put the star in the sky that drew the wise men there to be able to worship in the first place? God did. And friends, when you and I were running from God, when we were rebels, we had rejected him. God sent his son to save us. He initiated the pursuit. He is the one who pursues us. And he does it through the cross. The gospel is the means of worship. It is the fuel for worship. It is the pursuit of worship, the good news that Jesus has come to save you and save me from our sins. And even embedded in this passage, we see pictures of the gospel. Look with me again at verse two. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? That statement's gonna come back later. The next time we see that statement, it'll be written above the head of Jesus as he's dying on the cross for your sins and my sins. King of the Jews. The statement made over his birth will be the statement that hangs over his death in your place, in my place. But not only that, we see Bethlehem, the child's to be born in Bethlehem, but Bethlehem's no ordinary city. Bethlehem is the city of the shepherds and of the sheep. In fact, when you do study, you realize that Bethlehem was where most of the sacrificial lambs were raised so that they could go and be given at the temple for worship. And so it's fitting that Jesus would be born in the city of David, the shepherd king, but also be born in the city where the sacrificial lambs were raised for slaughter. And this is why John the Baptist, in seeing Jesus coming to him, says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Worship is initiated by God, but we also see the gospel in these gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is the gift of kings. It's a representation of a king. Frankincense, it's the representation of a priest. It would have been used by priests. Many of you who use essential oils know frankincense well because it brings healing properties and it's a part of all those things. But myrrh represents death. Myrrh comes up in the story again later too. Myrrh is dipped in the wine that is given to Jesus when he's on the cross. Myrrh is used by Joseph of Arimathea when Jesus is anointed for his burial. And so here at his birth and in this moment of celebration, we see that he is the king, that he is the priest, but he's come to die. But not just to die, to bring life to his people, to the nations, to you and to me. He is the king who's worthy of your worship and my worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our lives. Is he your king tonight? Is he the one you are worshiping with all your heart tonight? I just wanna invite you to bow in a time of response and I'll invite the team to come up. They're gonna lead us in an opportunity to sing praise to the Lord. But in the stillness of this moment, with not looking around, not being distracted, I just want to ask you again that question, who is your king? Who is your king? What are you worshiping? Who has your heart tonight? What has your heart? So thankful of the testimony of what God's done in Noah's life, and as he stands and stood in the Baptist tree and went into the water and came back out, it's a 
picture saying, I want Jesus to be the one who has my whole heart, my whole attention, my whole affection. Friend, tonight, who has your heart? And this is just an opportunity for some of you tonight, maybe you've never worshiped the king. You've been religious, you know about the Bible, you've come to church, but Jesus has never had your heart. He's never been your treasure. You would have said he's your Lord, your savior, but he's never been your treasure. He's never been the one that you love above all else. Tonight is an opportunity to turn from whatever savior you're hoping to save you out of your struggles tonight and turn to the only one who can to shift your worship to Jesus. Trusting in him by faith and just encourage you, if that's you tonight, trust in him. And if you're here tonight and you are a Jesus follower, the question I'd ask you is this, is there anything or anyone who right now is sitting on in the place of worship in your life? Is there anyone or anything that you're giving worth and praise, affection, glory, and honor to over Jesus tonight? Or has some false savior crept in and is seated on the throne of your praise? And if it is, this is an opportunity to repent. Maybe you've made your family an idol. Maybe you've made your job an idol. Maybe you've made your health an idol. Maybe you've made getting through 2020 and COVID an idol. Whatever that thing is, if there's something right now that is competing for your attention, your affection, your love, I just invite you to give it back to God. To repent, to ask for forgiveness, to ask him to help you to worship the one true king. Father, I just pray for my friends. I, I wrestle so much with this. There's so many things that compete for the worship of my life. Father, forgive us, help us. And we thank you, you do. We thank you that you're the one who initiates worship. Cultivate right worship in us. Help us to worship you. We thank you that you've made a way through your son, Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sin. We ask that you would help us to bring glory and honor to his name above every name with our lives tonight and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.